This evening I'm dealing with what I think is one of the most difficult topics an individual could discuss, and therefore I earnestly solicit your undivided attention and your support. And as one fellow said after the first service, it was really a dangerous kind of lesson to go to sleep in and then, you know, wake up somewhere a little later on. Because if you missed five or ten minutes, there might be some conclusions you thought were drawn that really weren't. And I urge you to listen. It's a topic not much discussed anymore. It's one very near and dear to my heart. It's entitled very simply, Undenominational Christianity. Since it is incumbent upon an individual in any intelligent discussion to clearly define his terms so as to be properly understood, I begin tonight by attempting to define what is meant by the expression undenominational Christianity. First of all, I submit to you that it is not interdenominationalism. Interdenominationalism is a union of denominations. It says that one church is as good as another, and it does not matter what one believes as long as he is honest and sincere. Undenominational Christianity is frankly antagonistic to the interdenominational point of view. Undenominational Christianity opposes divided sectarianism, united sectarianism, or any other kind of denominationalism, whether it exists inside or outside the body of Christ. This stance must be taken because interdenominationalism is not the religion of the New Testament. Secondly, undenominational Christianity is an extremely difficult view to comprehend and even more difficult to practice for a number of reasons. First of all, that's true because the party spirit is everywhere. You can see it in our feelings concerning our nation. My nation, right or wrong, is the attitude of many of our citizens and citizens of other countries in the world. And I think a study of history will prove that most of the bloody wars that have been fought have been fought simply because of a nationalistic spirit. You can see it in politics. You've heard a man described as a yellow dog Democrat. And that simply means he would vote for a yellow dog before he would vote for a Republican. And, of course, the same thing could be said about a yellow dog Republican. But I'm illustrating the fact there is a party spirit in politics. You can see it in world religions. I didn't realize until I made my first trip abroad in 1934, 1964, I was 34 at the time, in 1964 that this tendency towards sectarianism exists in world religions just like it does in Christendom. I talked to a Muslim in Jerusalem about his faith, and it would not agree with what a Muslim had said about his faith in Baghdad. Each of the men claimed to be a follower of Mohammed, but they didn't have the same point of view. And it's because of that tendency or that trend toward sectarianism or toward the party spirit. You can see it in civic clubs. One fellow just swears by Rotary, another's going to live and die a Kiwanian, and still another is speaking out long and loud for the Lions Club. You can see it in the clubs, the fraternities, and the sororities that exist on college campuses. And then, of course, it is evident in Christendom. When you think of Catholicism, there are three branches, the Greek Catholics, the Roman Catholics, and the English Catholics. When you consider Protestantism, there are many branches the Baptists, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Holiness, etc. When you think of the American Restoration Movement, there are at least three different wings in that movement today. There is simply a tendency then toward sectarianism, toward the party spirit, whether we're speaking politically, nationally, socially, racially, or religiously. It is extremely difficult to comprehend undenominational Christianity because many who profess to be undenominational really do not understand the matter. In my judgment, the vast majority of our people do not know the undenominational plea. It is also extremely difficult to comprehend because it's hard to be balanced. Over and over again in my classes at school, I've said, I want you to leave this class as an undenominational Christian without being a liberal. And I want you to leave this class loyal to a New Testament church without being a sectarian. But it's pretty difficult to be undenominational and not be liberal and to be loyal to a congregation established after the New Testament pattern without being a sectarian. 
So it's hard to comprehend what I'm discussing tonight because it's hard for us to be balanced. It seems that imbalance has been one of the problems of humanity almost from its beginning. Furthermore, undenominational Christianity is a view no longer being emphasized by the recipients of the Restoration plea. That's true, first of all, because it is a view not well understood. It is true in the second place because there have been many other issues across the years to occupy our attention. There's the problem of world evangelism. More than four billions of people live on the face of the earth tonight. Most of them have never heard a gospel sermon. These people need to be given opportunity to hear the truth. And so over and over again we've said, let's carry the gospel to others. Then there has been the problem of divorce. And consequently, we've had to preach on the permanency of marriage. There's been the problem of the instability of the home. So we've had to discuss the Christian home and how it ought to be stable and solid. There's been the problem of sexual immorality and sexual perversion. So we've had to deal with sexual purity. There's been the problem of racism. And we've had to discuss how that God is no respecter of persons and that all men are equal before Almighty God. There's the threat of world communism. And our people have had to be warned about a possible takeover in this land. There is the problem of liberalism, which has swept across all kinds of religion in America. And we've had to be warned about that. There's the problem of ultra-conservatism among our people. And we've had to be taught about that. We've had a controversy about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And you could go on and on and on. Because we have been so busy with those issues... We simply have said very little lately about undenominational Christianity. This view is not really being emphasized today because many of our people have fallen into the very thing which they said they have fought. It's easy to become like what you hate. It's easy to become like what you despise. I think Alexander Pope in his essay on man in the following words illustrates that point, and I quote, Vice is a monster of so frightful men as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen too oft, familiar with their face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. Unquote. We've heard about denominationalism. We've talked about denominationalism. And some of us have become like the very thing we despise. We have become sectarian in denominationalism while ostensibly fighting it. But fourthly, undenominational Christianity is a beautiful, marvelous, wonderful concept. If properly presented and received, it should sweep the majority of the Protestant world. I maintain there isn't anything that's comparable with the plea to be simply and only Christians, to be what people were 1,900 years ago. That leads me then to say, and I've already anticipated this definition, that undenominational Christianity is being in the 20th century what Christ's followers were in the first century. In the first century, they were simply Christians. A number of times I've been introduced in various places across the country as a simple Christian. And maybe that's what the Master of Ceremonies thinks about me. But at any rate, I like to point out that I am not a simple Christian, but I am simply a Christian. I am the latter, but not the former. In the early days, they were simply Christians. They were saints, believers, disciples, brethren. They were associated in local assemblies, congregations, or churches. To clarify the matter, one might answer, what were Peter, Paul, James, and John, religiously speaking? Of what sect were they members? In what denomination did they work? Peter was not a member of denomination A, and Paul in denomination B, and John in denomination C. They were not in different sects. They were not in different denominations. They were all God's people. They were simply and only Christians without sectarian affiliation and without denominational membership. Paul said at Galatians 6, Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Moses said at Genesis 1, 11 and 12, Things reproduce after their own kind. Jesus, according to Luke 8 and 11, said, The seed of the kingdom is the word of God. Nineteen hundred years ago, when the pure, unadulterated Word of God was preached, honest hearts responded by becoming disciples of Christ. Those people were children of God. They weren't anything more than that. They weren't anything less than that. They weren't anything beside that. Those people constituted New Testament churches. 
They were Christians. They worked and worshipped together in congregations which were not sectarian or denominational in origin. Suppose that a bird had an acorn in his beak, and suppose he flew out across a field and lost it. That acorn, let's say, falls into soft, fallow ground, and it makes a tree. What sort of tree will it be? What are we going to call it? Well, someone says it's a bird tree. A bird tree? The bird was simply the agent or the instrument by which the acorn was planted. That's not a bird tree. That's an oak tree. And it doesn't make any difference whether the seed was planted by the bird or whether it was planted by a person. And if the pure, simple, unadulterated, unmixed Word of God is taught today like it was in the first century, it will make not Campbellites, not Stoneites, not Scottites, but it will make simply and only Christians. That's undenominational Christianity. Suppose that three denominational churches in this community decided to cooperate in a revival. And suppose these three churches invited one man to come in and they said, Sir, we want you to preach only the Bible. Teach the New Testament. Don't teach any particular denominational dogma. Just preach the gospel. Let's suppose that in the course of two weeks, he does what he's been told to do. He preaches a crucified and a risen Savior. He tells people from Acts 2.38 they need to repent and be immersed in Christ's name for remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or he says, according to Mark 16, 15, and 16, that Jesus is the Christ. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Let's suppose in the course of that two-week meeting, 30 people respond to the invitation, having broken with sin, having confessed their faith in Jesus, then they were immersed. The meeting comes to a close. Spokesmen for the three cooperating denominations meet together and say, we've had 30 responses. We've had 30 conversions. Now, we want ten of them over here with us. The B group says we want ten of them, and the C group says we want ten of them. After all, we spent the money, we brought in the man, so we'll take ten each and that'll be fair. So they approach the thirty. One man acting as a spokesman for the group says to the spokesman for the denominational groups, Are we Christians? They say, Yes. You mean we've been born again of the water and the Spirit? They say, Yes. Can we go to heaven just like we are? They say yes. Would there be any added benefit or blessing from Almighty God by joining your denomination or your sect? And they say no. So these people respond to the request that they be split into three different groups this way. Now, brethren, we love and appreciate you. And thank you so much for bringing this man in to preach the gospel. We're delighted we've had the opportunity, but you agree we're Christians. You agree that we can meet together simply as Christians that we don't have to join anything to go to heaven, that we can serve God right where we are, so we're going to stay where we are. That's undenominational Christianity. That's non-sectarian New Testament Christianity. Suppose that people in this country this year were to cease playing baseball. And let's suppose that for the next 100 years there's not a game played. But in 2077, someone decides to initiate baseball playing again. Now, what's necessary to start? It doesn't make any difference whether they know about Abner Doubleday. It doesn't make any difference whether they know about Cooperstown. It doesn't make any difference whether they know all of the statistics on all of the great baseball players. All that's necessary is to have the book of rules. And they can follow those rules and be baseball players a hundred years from now, just like we have baseball players tonight. And I submit to you, if there hadn't been a Christian on the face of the earth in the last thousand years, and I don't believe that, but if there hadn't been a Christian on the face of the earth in the last thousand years, all that would be necessary for people to be undenominational Christians would be to pick up the New Testament and follow it. And follow it. And they would be undenominational New Testament Christians. If you're visiting here tonight, or as far as that's concerned, if you've been a Christian for years, generally speaking, one who believes in Jesus Christ is going to have to accept one of three positions. Catholic, Protestant, or Restorationist. I am neither Catholic nor Protestant, but I am a Restorationist. I believe with all of my heart in striving to practice today in the 20th century 
what they practiced 1,900 years ago. I am a Christian, a child of God, a saint, a disciple, one born again. I've never yet joined a sect. I never will. I am an undenominational New Testament Christian. You take from me the concept of restoring the early church in its primitive purity and simplicity today. You take that away from me. And I won't be a Catholic. I won't be a Protestant. I'll be an atheist. Because to me the only consistent positions are total infidelity on the one hand or apostolic Christianity on the other. And I don't believe there's a stopping place between the two points. Not logically. There's not a stopping place. Now there are those who argue against the undenominational position. Some of them even in the American Restoration Movement. I want to submit to you just a few of them and deal with them briefly. First, it is said that it is impossible to practice undenominational Christianity because any people grouped together would constitute a denomination. Well, if this is valid reasoning, the early Christians were denominational because they were grouped together apart from heathen religions and Judaism. Second, if this objection has any merit, then the New Testament authorizes denominationalism. Paul plainly said, Come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I'll receive you. He said, Separate yourselves. Come out from among them. Is that an endorsement of sectarianism? Thirdly, according to this stance, it would be an abject impossibility for anyone under any circumstances to ever be undenominational or non-sectarian. No one could ever do it, because if people are grouped together, if that constitutes a denomination, then no one could ever be undenominational. But the early church was undenominational. Somebody said, now wait a minute, Jim. Can't you see that there is a sense in which you would be denominational by being undenominational? And my answer is yes, I can see a sense in which that would be true. To borrow from Brother G.C. Brewer, if I had a deck of cards here tonight... I can start shuffling them and, and then dealing them out. Let's see, well, where are we going to put the twos together? Where are we going to put the fours together? Where are we going to put the sixes together? But now let's suppose in this deck we have some blanks. Where do they fall? Together. I'm simply a blank Christian. I'm a Christian without sectarian affiliation. I'm a Christian. I'm not in a denominational organization. Now the blanks fall together. And if you want to say we're denominational, that is, we're grouped together, by virtue of being undenominational, I'll grant that, but you simply cannot exist without that kind. That is the kind that's authorized in the Word of God. And that's the only kind that's authorized in the Word of God. But secondly, another argument. Since there are some in the sectarian world who have experienced the new birth, we cannot be undenominational because our fellowship does not include the entire church of God. In other words... Our fellowship embraces only a part of those who have been regenerated. In response, I say this. First, if some born-again people go back into worldly practices, does this mean I am worldly because we are no longer in fellowship? If some of Christ's disciples engage in lying, cheating, stealing, and committing fornication, does this mean I am immoral because we no longer have fellowship? When some of the early Christians went back into the Judaistic sects, does that mean those who continued to follow Christ were sectarian because they were no longer in fellowship with those who had departed? Why, in the name of sound reasoning, is one a sectarian or a denominationalist because of what others do? If we are denominational simply because some who have experienced the new birth are not in fellowship with us, this is the only sin which has the unique quality of making us guilty because of what others have done. But thirdly, it is argued that the American movement to restore apostolic Christianity in the 19th century is now passé, outdated and obsolete. The relevant endeavor for our time is the ecumenical movement, and we should participate in it. First, my friends, this is an admission. That first-century Christianity simply cannot be practiced. All will agree that non-sectarianism was the religion of the apostles. If it could be successfully practiced 1,900 years ago, why can it not be practiced now? Secondly, the ecumenical movement is interdenominationalism. 
It is an amalgamation of sects. It is a union of denominations. All admit that's not the religion of the New Testament. Why settle for something which is less than the best? Thirdly, to contend that the American Restoration Movement was only a part of the contemporary 19th century scene is to confuse Christianity with culture. Surely no informed person among us is attempting to restore the culture of the last century. Now, there are some religious people who are trying that. The Amish Mennonites, for example, they believe that you just sort of, you know, you stop history in the 19th century, and so they ride in the buggies, and they don't have any buttons on their clothes. But this is not the restorationism of which I speak. I'm talking about restoring New Testament Christianity, not the culture of the 19th century. Restorationism is just another word for New Testament Christianity. It is planting the seed, which is the gospel, in the hearts of men now as it was done then. The Word of God was adequate to meet the needs of men 1,900 years ago, and it's still adequate to meet the needs of men today. And you and I can no more improve upon the Word of God to accomplish its purposes than we can improve upon the Son for the accomplishment of its purposes. Now, I beg you to stay with me. Incidentally, I had one response at the first service that I know the message went over because she left a denominational position and took an undenominational position, so it paid off at least in one life. And I'm not wasting your time. To me, it's vital. It's vital to our future. It's vital to the future of religion, period, that it be understood. What are some of the leading traits of undenominational Christianity? First of all, it centers in Jesus Christ. He is Lord, Savior, creed, message, confession, example, foundation, head, mediator, life, power, and hope to those of us who are undenominational Christians. Every figure of Christ in the church in the New Testament sets forth His supremacy. We're the sheep. He is the good shepherd. We constitute the bride of the wife. He is the husband. We make up the kingdom. He is the king. We're the branches. He is the vine. We're the royal priesthood. He is the high priest. And we're the members of the body, but he is the head over the body. In Christ we have a glory that can never be clouded, a love that can never be fathomed, a life that can never die, a righteousness that can never be tarnished, a peace that can never be understood, a rest that can never be disturbed, a joy that can never be diminished, a hope that can never be disappointed, a light that can never be darkened, a happiness that can never be interrupted a strength that can never be enfeebled, a purity that can never be defiled, a beauty that can never be marred, a wisdom that can never be baffled, a wisdom that can never, a beauty that can never be barred, a wisdom that can never be baffled, and a resource that can never be exhausted. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He said in another place, it is no longer I that live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And it's written on the Harding College Bible building, a statement of Paul, Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The very heart, the center, the circumference, the core of our religion is Jesus Christ. You can't fake it either. You can't pretend it. You can't put up a facade. You can play the part of a hypocrite, but it will not work. Religion simply defined as one woman and her Lord. Or it's one man and his Lord. Undenominational Christianity is centered in Jesus Christ. We walk with him. He's our friend. He's our Lord. He's our master. We take direction from him. We're God's men. We're Christ's men and women. He rules. He has the supreme authority. Whatever he says, we submit to. Our attitude is, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth command, and I will obey. And never are we consciously in rebellion against him on any one point. Not a point. He's as close as our hands and our feet. He's real. If he were to materialize himself, he'd be standing next to me or he'd be sitting next to you. Jesus Christ is the center of our religion. It may sound trite to some. It's part of a song. He is my everything. He is my all. And without him I would fall. And we've got to believe that Jesus Christ is all the world to me. He has to be first place in our lives and no place. He simply will not take second place for anyone or anything. And I'll tell you how to find out if you're a Christ-centered person. Answer this question. Why do you want to go to heaven? Somebody says, stay out of hell. That won't work. Well, because my mother's there. That won't work. 
Well, my father's there. Won't work. Why do you want to go to heaven? I'll tell you why I want to go. Because a man's there's got the nail scars in his hands and in his feet. The man's there that died for me. And I maintain if we can get a look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll run past mother, father, husband, wife, brother, sister, uncle, aunt, niece, nephew, friend. We'll run past them all to grab hold of his feet and to adore him. And if your answer to why do you want to go to heaven is not because Christ is there, you're not a Christ-centered person. The center of undenominational Christianity is Jesus Christ. Second, the New Testament is its guide. I hope I don't sound too harsh, but a couple of years ago I read what I considered to be an asinine statement from a brother in Jesus. He said we put the Bible above Christ. And I thought, friend, what are you talking about? Jesus Christ reveals His will in the Bible. If we put the Bible above Christ and that's a true statement, then He must be implying that Christ is speaking somewhere other than through the Word. Where else is Jesus speaking to you and me other than through the Bible? I'll tell you why we want to follow the Bible, because it's the Lord's Word. It's what the crucified and risen one has said. That's why we want to follow it. Every church in this community that has an uninspired sinfully or a creed written by sinful men is sectarian. When you have a manual, a discipline, the articles of faith, that's one of the salient features of sectarianism. The word creed is from credo. It means I believe. There isn't anything wrong with you having a creed or with my having a creed. There isn't anything wrong with your writing it out. There isn't anything wrong with my writing it out. Here's where sectarianism enters the picture. When I write it out word for word and then bind it on your conscience as a matter of fellowship. But you see, our creed is not these books written by the sinful and uninspired men. Our creed, our guide, is not the traditions even of our own people, even though they may be hoary with age. A friend of mine was speaking one night in Nashville, Tennessee. He quoted Matthew 16, 18, Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And in his presentation he said that he felt in some sense Peter was the rock upon which the church is founded. Now I want you to know I don't believe that. I think he was wrong. But after the presentation, the church leader went up to him. He said, Brother Blank, your remarks on Matthew 16, 18 are not in harmony with the accepted position. He didn't argue with him linguistically. He didn't argue with him contextually. He didn't say his interpretation was a flat violation of a plain passage elsewhere in Scripture. He said it's not in harmony with the accepted position. Now, my point is this. Where is that book other than the Bible that has all of those accepted positions to which I am to acquiesce? Now, I love the brother who brought the criticism against the man who was speaking, but I'm telling you he was bound by tradition, and he'd become sectarian, and he'd become denominational, and it's thank you. Our guide is not quotations from great preachers of a previous generation. It's all right to quote uninspired men, Christian or otherwise. However, none is to be used as Christian authority. It is better to use the pioneers in the American Restoration Movement than to cite modern unbelieving scholarship. The works of a great brother now dead are no more authoritative and binding than the writings of a contemporary Christian whose credentials are comparable. One's loyalty to Jesus does not depend upon knowing the writings of good men who lived in the past. My concern is not that my views are in harmony with Campbell and Stone and Scott Hardiman and Brewer, but are they in harmony with the teachings of Jesus and Peter and Paul and John? And I'd like to think that I'd be the same thing religiously had I never read Alexander Campbell or had I never read Barton W. Stone. If the concept of restoration is a continual principle, and it is, it is possible for this generation to learn something which earlier generations overlooked. Even if those who preceded us learned it all, each one here must still learn for himself because our religion is based on knowledge and faith rather than on inheritance. And we need to use the language of Isaiah and say to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this, it is because there's no light in them. Or use the language of Jesus, the Scripture cannot be broken. Or again to use the language of Jesus, preach the gospel or listen to Paul, preach the word. Or listen again, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. I'm not trying to be mean or cute or unkind, but I simply do not intend 
to strain God's Word through the eyes of any other man. He gave me two eyes. He gave me a mind. And one of the features of the undenominational movement is the individual study and interpretation of Scripture. And everybody here needs to study the Bible for himself. I love Jim Woodruff. I respect him. But Jim can be wrong. I love the elders, but they can be wrong. And I'll meet God in the day of judgment on the basis of what he said in his word, not what someone else said he said. And so the Scripture is our guide. Thirdly, and here's where the controversy gets a little warm, undenominational Christianity recognizes that the born again forms the boundary of the church. This morning in the Annex... This question was discussed. Whom does the church include? Really, I wasn't supposed to have taught that class, but I got into it somehow. I don't seem like every time sparks fly, I get into something. But anyhow, whom does the church include? Here's the answer. It includes anyone who's obeyed the fundamentals of the gospel. Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there added unto them about 3,000 souls. Acts 2.47 says, The Lord added daily to the church those who were being saved. John chapter 3 says, One has to be born again of water and spirit to enter the kingdom. So anyone who has been born again, anyone who has believed and repented and been immersed, is a part of the undenominational church. That's who the church includes. Now, baptism simply cannot depend upon the administrator. Do you know who baptized you? I told the class over there this morning, I don't even know who baptized me. Now, I was conscious, don't misunderstand me, but I don't know who did it. It's either Andy Ritchie or L.C. Sears, and neither one of them will plead guilty. I just don't know who dipped me. One of these two men did. Does my salvation depend on knowing who did it? Does my salvation depend upon whoever did it having been a Christian? Now, I think each of these men are dedicated to Christ. But if baptism depends on the administrator, suppose the line's been broken somewhere between now and back to Pentecost. You say, well, I'll tell you one thing, Jim. The fellow baptized me as a dedicated Christian. All right, how about the one who baptized him? Was he a dedicated Christian? Or how about the one who baptized the one before that? Was he a dedicated... You see, if the line's been broken anywhere, we're all ruined. All of us ruined. I've said it before and i say it again. I maintain, if you're ready to obey the Lord, and you could get the devil to do it, if he would immerse you, You'd be a child of God. Now, I doubt that he's going to be anxious to accommodate you, but if you understood what you were doing, you believe in the Lord Jesus and you make a break with sin and you're ready to be immersed in Christ's name, if Satan immerses you, then you're a part of the undenominational church. You're a part of the church about which you read in the Bible, that church for which our Lord Jesus Christ died. Epibelac was sitting in a displaced person's camp at the end of the Second World War and he had a copy of the New Testament. He read it. Found out what he needed to do to be saved, and he had a fellow DP to immerse him. He didn't know whether the man had any religion or not. Was Epi be like a Christian or not? Is Epi a child of God today? He read his New Testament. He found out what to do, and he had a man to immerse him. He never had heard of the American Restoration Movement. But he was a child of God. Now, this means there are some in the sectarian world who have been born again. I'll state it again. This means there are some in the sectarian or the denominational world who have experienced the new birth. One ought not to be in a sect. One ought not to be in a denomination. And to be there is to be there without authority. But there are some there. You say, oh, now that couldn't be. All right, let me see if I can give you an illustration. Tomorrow they're going to race at Oakland. Do you suppose there will be any born-again people down there betting their hard-earned money? You think they ought to be there? My judgment is that if the money lost by born-again people at Oakland each year during the racing season were converted into missionaries, we could support 1,000 additional missionaries every year from Arkansas alone. Now, if born-again people are down there gambling and engaging in unauthorized and sinful activity, but they're still a part of the body. And if they want to get right with God Almighty, they don't have to be dipped in water, but they do need to make a confession of wrong and repent and pray about it. Now, if we can see how one could be at the racetrack, although born again, it ought not to be too difficult for us to understand that one might accidentally stumble into a sector or a denomination somewhere. 
Sectarianism is unauthorized in the Word of God. We do not endorse sectarianism. We do not endorse its erroneous practices by admitting that there is someone there who has been born again. Let me ask you this, my brothers and sisters. Do you believe division can exist in the body of Christ? In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. It had been declared unto me of you, my brethren, but them of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I have Cephas, and I have Apollos, and I have Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I baptized in mine own name. First of all, he said, brethren, oh, you ought not to be divided. And then after he did that, he rebuked them because they were divided. But notice how he started. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth. That was a church of God, but divided. Now, division is wrong. Now, suppose those who were apologists baptized someone. Were they members of the universal body? Suppose those who were Paulites baptized someone. Were they members of the universal body? Suppose those who were Cephasites immersed someone. Were they members of the body of Christ? Three different divisions existed in the church, but they all taught people to repent and be immersed. The people did it. Now, would they have been children of God? Were they a part of God's family? Oh, well, your answer has to be yes. We've got a division right here in town. We just might as well, you know, up and admit it. I can't tell you exactly where it is, but there's a little church building back over here somewhere. Uh, some of our folk whom we love that, uh, that think it's wrong because we support an orphan's home out of the church treasury, and so they don't do it that way. Well, they're, they're sitting out here somewhere. Now, those people preach precisely the same thing you and I do in trying to get people to obey the gospel. I want to know something. If some of those folk over yonder want to come over here and get themselves right with the Lord, we're going to have to dip them again. Have to dip them again. Anyone born again of the water and the Spirit is a member of this universal undenominational body. The mistake he makes is by getting into a sect or getting into a denomination. And that's what's unauthorized. The fact that he obeyed the Lord and became a child of God is authorized. And I beg you to hear this. Division cannot exist anywhere outside the body. It can exist only in the body. If it's something outside the body, how in the world could you talk about Christians being divided if they're not even in the body? If they're not in the body, they're not Christians. Division can exist only in the body of Christ. It can't exist anywhere else. And the fact that division exists in the body of Christ does not mean that one who is led to the Lord by a divisive group is not a child of God. It means he's wrong if he becomes a part of a sect, but he's a part of that universal body, that universal church. Now, I want you to hear this. I beg you to listen to me. Please don't tune out. If we use a biblical expression in such a way as to include less than all the born again, we are denominational in our thinking. Okay, tomorrow, somebody says, Joe, what church are you a member of? You say, I'm a member of the Church of Christ. You mean you're a member of the church that includes all the born again? Is that what you mean by it? Everybody on the face of the earth has been born again of the water and the Spirit. Everybody who's been initially washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, that's what you mean? You say, well, uh, is that what that was? You mean something less than that? You know all any sect claims to be? If I had a blackboard here, I'd draw a great big circle. And that great big circle would represent the universal body of Christ. Do you know what a sect claims to be? A sect claims to be a part of it. A little circle inside the big circle. So I come along, I say, well, I remember the Church of Christ. You don't mean all of it? You don't mean all the born again? You mean something less than the born again? Then you're a sectarian as anyone else because that's all any sect claims to be is just a part of the born again. But the church of which I'm a member includes all of them. All the born again. Not part of them. All of them. Our speech betrays us. We can use biblical language and give that biblical language an unbiblical application. We can use a biblical expression and give it an unbiblical definition. When you say you're a part of the church, when you say you're a part of the body of Christ, do you mean all the born again? If you don't mean all the born again, then you mean a part of them. If you mean a part of them, then you're sectarian in your thinking. Now, in the world, somebody who thinks like a sectarian is going to be able to convince someone else that sectarianism is wrong. How's he going to do it? Fourthly, a feature of undenominational Christianity is 
biblical language, is its vocabulary. Somebody said, well, you know, I've got a good Bible thought, but I, I just can't express it in Bible language. If you've got a real good Bible thought, you can express it in Bible language. And if you can't express it in Bible language, that may be a pretty good indication it's not a Bible thought. We need to do our best to speak where the Bible speaks, to remain silent where the Bible is silent. It's called Bible things by Bible names. Express Bible thoughts in a Bible manner. We need to do our best to do that. Uh, let's talk, let's just, just to illustrate. What about salvation? How does Scripture speak of one's being saved or being made whole? Colossians 2, 6, receiving Jesus as Lord. Romans 10, 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18, obedience to the gospel. 1 Peter 1, obedience to the truth. So if we're going to talk about the salvation process, let's use scriptural expressions. All right, suppose we're going to talk about church leaders. Acts 20 and 17, they're called elders or presbyters. In verse 28, they're called bishops or overseers. In Ephesians chapter 4, they're called pastors. So we're going to talk about our church leaders as elders, presbyters, bishops, overseers, pastors, or shepherds. We're going to describe them that way. Well, suppose we're going to talk about preachers. Well, according to 2 Corinthians 3, we can call them ministers. 2 Timothy 4, we can call them evangelists. Well, then we begin to call the preacher the pastor. Well, he's not a pastor unless he's also a presbyter. Of course, a fellow could be an evangelist and he could be a pastor too. I claim to be both. But a preacher is not just automatically a pastor. So what kind of language do we use? Or you can even think about this. How will brother Jim Woodruff and then it's, you know, it's Wimp, and it's Tim, and it's Floyd, and so it's Brother This, and what do we got? Some sort of a separated group here, a clergy or something that's got to Brother Them, and everybody else just old Joe and Jack and so forth? My point is, we're going to use biblical language, let's use biblical language. We're going to be undenominational Christians, let's use the language of the Bible. Now let's get down just a little bit closer. I maintain that our language betrays our thinking. Our speech betrays us. And what comes forth in the lips is an expression of what's back here. Now, I don't want anyone to think that I'm shooting at anybody in particular. I'm not. I know Travis Jenkins. I've known him well. Had him as a student. He sat through many of my classes. I know about his psychiatric profession in uh, Springdale, Arkansas. So we had Travis here on campus oh, some time ago. I saw it in print, and I heard it stated, the only Christian psychiatrist in the state of Arkansas. Now, how do you know that? The only Christian psychiatrist in the state of Arkansas. That's the way it was written. That was the way it was announced. The only Christian psychiatrist in the state of Arkansas. Now, I'll guarantee you one thing. That, that's a mouthful. In fact, I'd choke on it. Why not say this? That here is a man who's been born again of the water and the Spirit who's striving to be simply an undenominational Christian. There might be some psychiatrist in the state of Arkansas somewhere who has been born again. That doesn't mean if he's in a sect, I endorse his sectarianism. But now, we made that statement over and over again. The only Christian psychiatrist in the state of Arkansas. I believe Travis Jenkins is a Christian. I want everybody here to understand. I believe that. I'm not reflecting on him. I'm reflecting on our language. Well, this shows how we get sectarian, how we get to be denominational in our thinking, and how we may include less than all the born again when we use a scriptural expression. All right, let's try this. Uh, you're out here visiting with somebody. And, uh, hey, what are you? Well, you say, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian, child of God. You say, what are you? You say, well, I'm a Methodist. You say, hey, friend, you ought not to be a Methodist Christian. People ought not to be Methodist Christians or Baptist Christians or Presbyterian Christians. They ought, you know, you ought just be a Christian Christian. He said, well, well that sounds right. I'm, you know. But he said, hey, friend, aren't you a Church Christ Christian? To try to show a distinction. Now, I said all that to say this. Brethren, we don't... And I'm, I'm not mad. I'm just trying to teach... Trying to get a point across. I'm mad at some concepts, not anybody. Brethren, the word denominate means to name. And when we name ourselves solely and exclusively, we are denominational. And when we go out here and say, Hey, you ought not to be Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Christians. And then we turn around and use one expression to name ourselves... The smart people in this community say, oh, yeah, yeah, it's real good when you're putting it on us, but you don't practice it yourself. And so they know we're using a scriptural expression, Church of Christ, in an unscriptural way. We have used it as a denominational title. Now, the sign isn't up yet, but we're having some signs made. And you're going to look out here and see Church of God. 
Maybe in a couple of weeks, you'll look out here and you'll see the sign, Church of the Saints. In two or three weeks, you'll look out here and you're going to see a sign hanging up, Church of Christ. And you're going to be able to look out two or three weeks later and you're going to be able to see something about the body of Christ. You're going to see all these signs out here. Somebody driving and saying, what in the world is that bunch anyhow? What is that bunch? I will tell you this. We didn't get into this mess overnight. And we may not get out overnight, but I maintain we can start something now which in maybe 10, 15, or 20 years will convince our neighbors in this community that we're just Christians. And that alone... I'm not a sectarian Christian. I'm not a denominational Christian. I am a Christian without any sectarian affiliations. I've never joined a sect. I'm in the church you read about in the Bible. I am not a Church of Christ Christian. Just a Christian. That's all. Just a saint. Just a child of God. Now, you can think about it what you, what you please, I suppose. But, brethren, I'm convinced if we don't get hold of it now, we may lose it. Totally and completely lose it. I say it's this generation gets it, or I don't know whether the next generation will get it or not. We've got a whole generation of people who know not Joseph. They haven't even been taught the idea of restoration of New Testament Christianity. And I find I'm not mad at any of my students, but a lot of my students don't understand it. When I get on it in class, their eyes look like saucers. You know, well, I wonder what in the world have been taught back home. What have they been taught back home? Anyhow. So when we use one expression solely and exclusively, we become denominational. Today, it's not unusual to hear people talk about Church Christ churches, Church Christ members, Church Christ people, Church Christ literature, Church Christ colleges, Church Christ actions. What more do you have to have to be denominational? I've got a little radio program daily, Monday through Friday, comes on 11.50. And if you listen to that thing, I have tried in every one of those broadcasts to use an undenominational approach. And when I talk about the church, I speak of the congregation that meets at 712 East Race Street, the group that meets there. And I think I can avoid being a sectarian or a denominationalist in this fashion. I don't know whether Perry Mason is here or Elizabeth. This man, G.C. Brewer, was Perry's father-in-law, Elizabeth's dad. And, of course, to me, one of God's greatest I guess I thought too much of him. I just absolutely worshipped the ground on which he walked. I saw in G.C. Brewer's life two traits I wanted. Brewer was like anyone else. His feet were made of clay. He made mistakes. But I tell you what, he was courage personified, and I believe he'd fought a circle saw for what he thought was right. And I said, God Almighty, help me to have the kind of courage that I see in his life, to stand for the right. And another trait he had was he was an undenominational Christian. He wasn't anybody's church of Christ, or he was not a party man. He was not an ugly, spirited kind of fellow. He'd stand up and fight with you, but do his dead-level best to do it in a good spirit even then. I wish Brother Brewer had written this book earlier. He was dying when he wrote it. He knew he was on his deathbed. He was in tremendous pain. And again, I want everybody to understand I'm not reflecting upon his lamented and sainted memory. This book is not as well written as some of the other things he did. But I want you to listen to what the old man said just before he died. I have never been ashamed of the gospel message, and I have never been ashamed of the principles for which my intelligent brethren stand, especially the principles which were laid down and contended for by Alexander Campbell and Moses Lard and Ben Franklin, David Lipscomb, F.D. Shrigley, and M.C. Curfees. I only wish that the generation of preachers that have the responsibility of the work today will acquaint themselves with the works of these men and get a thorough grasp on undenominational Christianity. The greatest grief of my soul as I face eternity is the fact that the brethren have seemingly almost universally denominationalized the church. God have mercy on us. Unquote. 72-year-old man who fought all the wars. He knew sectarianism in and out. And he knew the drift of our people. There's nothing in the New Testament about a denomination, about how to organize one, about its officers, about how to conduct its services, about how to enter a denomination, about how to ordain denominational ministers. It is simply an undenominational book. Last year in his meeting 
with the college church. Brother Avon Malone said, Suppose that a man in India got a copy of the New Testament and read it and he obeyed it. What would he be? Be a Christian. And you know, none of us have any trouble with that. Over there in India, he reads the New Testament. He becomes a brother in Christ. But suppose he's just 15 miles out in White County. Uh-oh, now we begin to squirm a little. He sits down with an open New Testament, learns about the Lord Jesus, and sees that he ought to believe, repent, and be immersed. And he does that. What is he? He's a Christian. Suppose he's just five blocks from the church house. He does the same thing. What is he? He's a Christian. And that's all he ought to, he ought to ever be is just a Christian. And he ought to identify himself with a group of people who are simply and only Christians, and he ought to work and worship with them in a church established along New Testament lines. That's what he ought to be. God being my helper, I'm going to live and die as a non-sectarian, undenominational Christian. I want to be God's man, and I don't want to have the party spirit for anybody under any circumstances. Just be true to him. If everything in the world tonight is right, what I've told you is right. And if everything in the world tonight is wrong, what I've told you is still right. This is a position that's right and cannot be wrong. And I plead with you to take your stand, to be simply and only a child of God and loyal to the Christ, devoted to the New Testament, live and die a part of his church without any sectarian affiliation. Why wouldn't that thing take the world? Why? You need to respond tonight and give your life to Christ by confession of faith and by repentance. And by immersion, please do it. You need to come tonight to renounce error, denominational, sectarian error. Do that. We'll pray about it. You can start again. If you need to come tonight to be restored to your first love, do it. We're going to sing 306. I think that's trust and obey. And while we sing this hymn, won't you come if you need to? Let's stand together. And you come right now, please.